0: and welcome to Downstream, the show that says if politics is downstream from culture, then well, where the Beckton works. It's become something of a cliche to say the game's gone in response to everything from VAR to handball to too many or not enough red cards. But perhaps, maybe this time, dad might be right. With Sunday's announcement of a European Super League formed by 12 breakaway clubs, including the so-called Big Six of the Premier League, people are starting to wonder if this might indeed be the end of football as we know it, and perhaps it's been a long time coming. Since Russian billionaires Roman Abramovich's purchase of Chelsea in 2003, football clubs have become lucrative investment options for oligarchs, oil barons, and super wealthy conglomerates. While the romance of the game remains tied to increasingly foggy notions of community, tradition, and neighborhood, the reality is that in many ways, football reflects the worst of the global economy. It's a marketing tool for fossil fuel giants and corrupt regimes, a revenue-generating machine for American corporate interests, and what was once the people's game has now morphed into something else entirely. And with me to discuss the Super League breakaway and how a sport created by the poor was stolen, really, by the rich, is Lawrence McKenna, podcaster, YouTuber, and Twitch streamer. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. This is great.
0: I've been waiting to get more football on Navarra, and this is just a flimsy pretext.
1: I absolutely saw that. The message came through and I was like, oh, this is ideal. You are going to pretend that we're talking about politics.
0: It's like, oh, she sent me this message six months ago saying, bide your time. <laughs> exactly, the yeah. The moment will come. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, I first, I first saw you on the kickoff and there was that clip of you which went super viral recently, mm-hmm. which was ripping into the greed and um, the kind of quite mercenary logics governing right. uh, the modern game yeah um, so where else can people find you if they want to learn more about your work
1: it, to be honest it is mostly the kickoff um, or just I, you tend to just put my name into YouTube and some sort of offensive clip will pop up um, and, I know how
0: that feels
1: right okay yeah exactly um, yeah we can relate totally on that actually um, and uh, you know I've, I've covered football for a very long time uh, so I guess I've, I've been all over the place, but I also do a podcast with uh, my co-host True Geordie and just plenty of other things. So I'm sure if you can find me somewhere, then you'll find me on YouTube or on Twitch. We're all over the place at the moment.
0: So first question, super easy. What's going on with the Super League? Who's behind it and why is it bad?
1: You know what? Like, I, I, don't You go through stages of acceptance and I'm trying to work <laughs> out what stage of acceptance I'm at. And um, it's a tricky one because... We all know where the Super League came from, but I'm not actually sure that the genesis of the Super League is the people who are doing it now. This idea has been around for much longer than the Glazers have owned Manchester United, than John Henry has owned Liverpool, than any of these people have even existed in football. Because there's always been this idea that there is always something better For football to do right that's exactly what fifa sells you on every time that they sell a world cup you know you'll get all these great stadiums uh the football will be better this year we'll put a mcdonald's in here and this thing will appear over here and everyone will be thrilled and you kind of sold on that dream for a little while but ultimately you know maybe it's human nature or maybe there's something else in there but we're always trying to upgrade things and we never seem quite happy the grass is always greener in that sense and I genuinely think that these guys who are doing this, the you know, the Joel Glazers, the John W. Henry's, even the Daniel Levy's kind of believe they're doing us a favor by making a, what they call a super league. The word super in the first place is ridiculous anyway. It just makes me think of Super Mario. And it came from these guys wanting to make more money from the football clubs, in a very crude sense. I don't know if you want me to go into like the football side of it and the sports side of it, because I'm also an NBA fan. So I'm trying to work out how conflicted I feel that an NBA model is being put onto football. And in a strange way, the American NBA model is maybe the most liberal thing that they do in the whole country.
0: Well, I mean, there's a lot that I like about the NBA, but there's more that I hate about American sports right. in general. And I think one is this sense of being unmoored from place you know i grew up with a football culture which is so about place and neighborhood or at least that's the myth of it right whereas in america it seems like you can live anywhere support anyone yeah and that's fine because everyone's got a TV, so it's all the same place anyway.
1: And it's kind of the generation you grew up in a little bit as well. Like whether you are, you definitely if you grew up in the Blair era, then you're a bit of a globalizer. And so you kind of, you know, if you grew up with Space Jam and that kind of thing, I was totally sold on that idea. I am still partly, like my heart still wants to think that I'm linked with the San Antonio Spurs when I watch them on TV or, who, you know, whoever I'm watching over there or But the reality maybe is a little bit different from that. And I actually think that this is part of what we're contending with here is the romanticism of English football and continental football in Europe contrasted with what these Americans, predominantly American owners, uh, you know, there's a, a Russian guy in there, there's a Spanish guy in there who's definitely not romantic and plenty of other people. And those guys are basically saying, look, here's the reality outside of the romanticism we're just selling you back the reality of what's going on here. And that's what's sort of making me a bit uncomfortable at this point.
0: Thinking about the way in which this does kind of entrench an American model of sport in European football is one of the ways in mm-hmm. which it does that is that it bakes in this principle of too big to fail. So yes, that's the big difference for listeners who are maybe a bit less familiar with the differences between the Champions League, which is already pretty unequal it's pretty predictable in terms of who's going to make it into the semis
1: absolutely yeah absolutely and and you know what I I get it like we we all want it to be every year to be the Leicester City year and we all want every year to be the Jurgen Klopp taking Dortmund to the final year or Liverpool in 2005 having a terrible side we want to believe that that is the case and in so many ways it is the case and in so many times it is the case but the point is the Premier League is already uneven The Champions League is already uneven. All of our competitions are currently uneven. We are partly just marketed the other way. And this is what I I think, in many ways, the billionaires who are spending three and a half billion launching this and putting all the money into it, the last thing they thought of is how we're going to see it and how it's going to be marketed to us. And that's what I found most bizarre about it. I'm looking at the logo and I'm thinking, well, you guys put no thought into that. I'm looking at a press release that looks like it was done on Microsoft Paint. (coughs) And I, I sit back and think, so is that because you're not serious about the idea and actually you're just jockeying for power here? Is that because actually you don't take us seriously enough to think that we matter enough to have a public facing idea of this yet? Or is it because you actually aren't thinking about this and you're just so, blazing, uh, so brazen with this idea that, you know, we're the corporate guys. We, knows what, we know what's best, which, by the way, was totally the vibe from Florentino Perez last night when he was giving his interview. And they don't actually live in the world that we live in. They don't exist in the world that we exist in in football. I don't know if, if I actually share many commonalities with any of these guys who are proposing this to me.
0: But I mean let's talk about Florentino Perez um for a minute who's sort of been one of you know the big backers of these ideas. Last mm-hmm. night he gives this completely bizarre interview from my perspective where he goes well look younger audiences are turning away from football we've seen the statistics so what we need to do is make the matches shorter because obviously anyone under the age of 25 has got the attention Span of a Nats. They're used to TikToks. God bless them. Sure. Um, sure.
1: Yeah. That's and, not true, but all right.
0: And that you need to like access um, football content the way you would anything else on Netflix or Disney Plus or any kind of streaming thing. So, where do you think that comes from? Do you think it comes from like a crude understanding of how viewing habits have changed and like a level of denial about how much his own actions have corroded the game and, and made it something that's not worth watching?
1: Oh yeah, totally. Let's talk about what his actions have done before we get into where his thought process goes because what his actions have done, (coughs) can I even really say this? Yeah, okay. They've kind of run a brilliant uh, brilliant institution, a brilliant institution into the ground in the same way as Barcelona are in this because they are running their own club into the ground. They're in so much debt because they put their cash in the wrong places that they need this. At least that's the way that they're marketing it. And that's partly why I don't think Bayern Munich were invited to the party. And that's partly why I don't think other clubs were invited to the party, because that would show up some of these guys who are very rich people, very wealthy, and not actually doing a particularly fantastic job sometimes. And then I guess the other the other part of your question was about uh, how how the genesis of this idea comes about from him. And I think it shows, like, there are think tanks out there. There are all these studies. You know, we see all the biggest channels on YouTube and Uh, that Google own and those kind of things, giving us all these ideas that young people don't seem to want to concentrate. They actually want to just consume football as a, as as like a passive thing. And it'll, you know, if we keep this 24 hour stream, we'll just dip in and out of football every now and again. And that's a good thing. And I I don't quite understand that thought process. That's just marketing speak for, we just want to make this appeal to more people. And frankly, I don't really care if it appeals to more people. I don't care if everyone around the world loves football or not. And there are already enough people around the world who love football without us even marketing it to them, by the way. like Football wasn't marketed. It just rolled into a room and someone went, that looks fun to kick. I might try that. And then they did it. And that's what I kind of don't understand about this, is they seem to be missing the fundamental values of football because they're so in the marketing side of football. And I get it. Like I'm in the marketing side of football. I've literally got like a fake tattoo from a brand deal that I did on the weekend as a joke (laughs) on my arm because I have to pay my bills and that's what I do with football. But it doesn't mean that I don't remember where football came from or why I'm lucky to do my job or any of these things. And I just find the whole thing bizarre. I mean, I don't know about you, like you're you're obviously, you're a Spurs fan.
0: Yeah, I don't enjoy football. I haven't enjoyed football for a long time. It's more like a bad boyfriend who promises right. he can change every year and so I don't break up with him but I still love it
1: right and and, and like you definitely feel that way because you guys got rid of Pochettino and <laughs> um and I understand you know what I was literally just before this I was like looking at myself in the mirror like fixing my hair and I just looked in the mirror and I was like I kind of want to like the billionaires I want like I think that's what's wrong with what's happening in my mind is I want to like the Premier League and the people who run it because I like the Premier League and football and I want to like John Henry because he owns the thing that I love, but I'm not sure whether I should. Like, I don't, those two thoughts are at odds, if if that makes sense. Mm. Like, just because you are my club doesn't mean I like you, or I have to defend you, or we have much in common. It just means that you see the value in me as a consumer, presumably.
0: I mean, you know, there's so much in here. One thing that you're talking about, which is value and the sort of like, to put it in a very crude Marxist sense, but the kind of exchange value, which is supposed to only ever go up and up and up um, and is completely uh, unamored from the kind of non-financial, non-exchangeable values of football around identity. And, you know, even me saying like, oh, Spurs is like the bad boyfriend of my life. That's kind of part of the joy to be able yeah. to talk about it in these terms of, of a relationship term, not a, you know, not a commodity. Um, but let's talk about the financial backers for a second, because I yeah, was absolutely. really astonished by the sums of money that um, have been poured into this already. <sighs> so, you know, the American bank, JP Morgan, have committed 3.5 billion euros, and that's been lent against future broadcasting revenue. So there's an expectation mm-hmm. of the sums of money, which is going to come back from from, from this kind of venture. How unusual is an arrangement like that in football? And is it something which is maybe more common to see in American sports? Is that another import?
1: Oh, uh, that's a really good question, actually, isn't it? Because, wow, it's, that's there are so many models where I think that happens, but we just don't hear about it. And there are so many times where I think um, people promise a lot in sport. And very often those promises aren't fulfilled. So I imagine there are a lot of people who back things and just don't mention that they put the money into it at some point. But having said that, I do think it is a very American model. Um, you know, you, you look at the way that the NBA is funded. You look at the way that the NFL is funded. Um, you know, you, you look at, uh, the. I'd say it's a lot more transparent than we're used to hearing. I've never really heard how much money the Premier League make, for instance, uh, on a, like a transparent conversational basis. It's not like common knowledge. And suddenly three and a half billion is like, all I can think about right now. And that's a very unusual thing. Um, Having said that, we know exactly how much cash was passing hands between FIFA delegates. We have no idea how much cash has exchanged hands between, say, certain countries that might be hosting the World Cup in the next couple of years. And people say who got excluded from the Super League. But are hypocritical enough to say that they think their club has value, but at the same time deny slavery or things to that effect in another country, say, for a different person's cash. So there are many double standards in football. I think that what we're really discovering is some people are just better at A, marketing them and B, hiding them so that we just don't hear or know about them. I mean, um, and that makes me uncomfortable.
0: I, I completely hear you on that because there's when you're looking for, you know, a good guy versus bad guy narrative and suddenly you're like, well, hang on, do I have to side with UEFA here or FIFA? You know, it's not so long ago that you know, Michelle Platini was, you know, in custody having to ask answer questions on a corruption scandal. Um, you know, I remember when the name Sepp Blatter was was a byword for receiving kickbacks. So, oh,
1: it still is. Sorry, it still is. It, it will be for the rest of my life.
0: I mean, I'm forever associated with bribery, I'm just like, ah, oh, set um Yeah. In terms of like where fans are supposed to put their energy and where they're supposed to sort of put their loyalties, it's like, well, we don't want a Super League to happen. It's not competitive. It takes away accountability and sort of, you know, further almost like democratic distance from the fans. But also at the same that. time, I don't want to be like siding with these like really slimy, you know, corrupt, untrustworthy suits.
1: And it's partly because they've sort of got our hearts in a way. Like they've got something that we really like. So we have to pick a side in a sense. Like, um, and also they're fronted by people that I like. Like Louis Figo tweeted something the other day and I disagreed with it. And I found myself genuinely Trying to justify it, and I was sitting there like, I liked you, I loved you as a player and then I'll be honest I really strange i was I was out this morning, and Everton tweeted, and there was a pub there was a statement, and I read it, and suddenly, because Everton had tweeted it, I found myself trying to justify what Liverpool were doing, and I thought. No, you know what? Screw you. You're not in this. You're not important enough. Like, you know, from a very, uh, like, visceral level, I was like, no, you know what? We're the most powerful and you're not important enough to be in this club with us. You're just jealous. And so I found myself, like, switching sides this whole time and, like, uh, doing some mental gymnastics to try and work out how I feel about, by the way, something which is a competition, which is inherently about grading people and telling them, you did a good enough job within this 90 minutes, you're rewarded three points, (laughs) So, like, of course there's a competitive element involved in this. But I think that's where some people have sort of gone wrong. And I kind of think that where the billionaires have gone wrong here... There's not just one kind of competition. There's not one way of framing competition. There's not one way of, um, like, grading people. There are multiple indexes for how you do well in sport. The NBA happens to be one of them. The Premier League happens to be another. The Olympics happens to be another. There are multiple ways in our multiple societies that we've worked out different levels of value. And the diversity of those is what is important. In the same way as grassroots football is not judged in the same way as Premier League football. And Champions League football is not judged in the same way as... You know, if I was to take my son to play football this afternoon, it's not the same thing. And they don't seem to understand that. They seem to want to almost create like a new strata of football, which, by the way, this is totally what it would be. It would become a different level of athleticism, a different level of like tactics. Anabolics is what I was
0: going to say. To
1: to some extent, (laughs) like whether you want to talk figuratively or literally, literally. um, Okay, I mean, either way, it, it, you know, it's either marketing on anabolics or it, there's, you know, there's some accusations we need to make. So that's what I'm saying here. Like, what these guys are trying to do is what they feel is progress. And strangely, I don't know why, but I'm always taken back to not Have you seen the film Moneyball? Brad yeah, Pitt, he's yeah, I mean, yeah. beautiful in it. He's just, yeah, perfect, his bone structure. And he goes from meeting from the Oakland days who were this tiny team who had to do things on a budget. And you're really invested in him and you really want him to win. And then suddenly John Henry, who's the owner of Liverpool now, gives him a call or gives him a, gives him a message. So he gets a message and he goes to Boston to go meet John Henry, who owns the Red Sox and therefore owns their stadium. So he walks into this beautiful stadium and John Henry talks to him. In, it's not really him, obviously, it's an actor, but the, it was a conversation that apparently happened. And he turns to him and he says, the first one through the wall always gets bloody. And I worked out that's what they think they are. They think they're the first ones through the wall. They think they're innovating. They think that what they're doing here is actually good for us. It doesn't make them right, and it doesn't mean that they have like noble intentions because clearly they want to make cash. But in many ways, I think it shows like the delusion of the world that some of our owners live in, if not all of our owners live in. And it made me feel a bit sorry for them, if I'm honest. It made me feel a bit like oh, you don't get why I'm here. You don't understand why I cry, why I cry if we win the Premier League or why it was so important to me that I shared that with another member of my family. And it really made me just so distant from whatever Liverpool's badge means and everything else. And to see in the echo today in Liverpool that I think it's uh, Bill Shankly's grandson wants the statue taken down from outside Anfield. That's An iconic statue for a reason is because he was a the club was built on his values the club was built on what he wanted liverpool to be which was a a bastion of invincibility that could beat anyone else tick and b a place where everyone felt welcome everyone could afford a ticket and everyone could share an experience and suddenly we find ourselves in a place where that's probably not the case anymore
0: but that drift has been such a long time coming in terms of what you were saying, in terms of like affordability of tickets, being able to share in the experience, it being accessible mm-hmm. to everybody, everybody who lives in the immediate area. I mean, you know, look at the Spurs Stadium, which isn't that far from me. Um, its expansion mm-hmm. also meant a certain level of gentrification. Same for, you know, um, the Emirates Stadium. Um, you've got this of displacement. So just rolling back a little bit about, When did this drift, if you had to pinpoint a moment or a set of moments, when did it begin in terms of um, football as an experience being turned into football as a commodity, which then became an unaffordable commodity to its kind of original customer base, if you want to put it that way.
1: Right. I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Um, I mean you know, if you want to go back, you can go all the way back to the start of football when uh, Liverpool and Everton were formed. And I think it was our John McKenna. We do happen to share a (laughs) song. John McKenna, who created the, created Liverpool when there was some sort of business disagreement and Everton went across Stanley Park and set up Everton. And uh, that was a competitive thing. And that was a, Partly about money, uh, because I think that was an argument over, um, yeah, an argument over how much they were paying him to rent the ground. So there's your first uh, financial argument in football. It happened, I'll say over a century ago, because I can't do the maths off the top of my head. <laughs> um, but, but, I want to say 1892. 1892, that was the year Liverpool were set up. So it was that year or just before, right? Fast forward 100 years, and we're into post Thatcher Britain, which still holds a lot of those values. Capitalism is becoming more rampant. Globalisation is sort of becoming part of the idea. Uh, Britain loves the idea, by the way, that it can expand back out and sort of show everyone else how we can do this. Hence why it's the Premier League. And we create the Premier League. And let's be honest. I mean, it's interesting. I've got so many replies in my tweets today. I don't know if you get like similar things when you talk about this. Like people being like, no, no, the Premier League saved English football. And I'm like, mm. no, that was the branding of what they did. What <laughs> they really did was an opportunistic thing and was quite shameless but we just ate it up because that's what we do when you have a conservative government and rich people do things like it was all marketed that way and they were just by the way they were just allowed to do it there was there was uproar of a type but it wasn't really like what we're feeling now and people were sold this idea that things would be better right and for me, that's where it started. And I've got to be honest, I've witnessed, I've firsthand witnessed every other aspect of it. I've been in corporate boxes. I've flown on private jets with people. I've done all the things that you would, which now I look at myself and I'm like, you know, God, that was a great experience. But am I proud of some of those things? I've, I've done like corporate gigs, all these kind of things. And that all contributed towards it. I also realized that like, it's okay to have some of these experiences, but it's just, at, what, at some point we have to give something back to the core fans. And it seems that every year the experience get lesser and lesser and lesser for the core fans and wider and wider and wider for the other people. It was okay when it was a couple of vloggers that were invited to a game or a couple of TikTok stars or whatever. But now it seems like they are the priority. And that's why they shouldn't be the priority in this. It should be the fans. I've got a friend called Rory and he was on another, he was on a radio station today and he was saying like, These people are just custodians of the club. They just happen to be the people who own it at this time. And they're lucky to have it. They're lucky to own our crest and our memories and all those things. But for some strange reason, we don't get treated as if they're the lucky ones. We are the lucky ones, apparently.
0: Do you think that there's a certain naivety in expecting that it could be Different. The minute you bring in billionaire ownership, the minute you have you know third-party ownership, the minute you've got a level of financialization, which means that the Glazers come in and they accomplish this astonishing debt-loading raid in 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 the takeover of Manchester United. Is then is it naive to go? There's a nice way to do this, and then actually, if what you want is to have that that return of a romantic experience is i think the kind of thing you're talking about where you do have absolutely yeah uh, you do have value assigned to things like memory and to identity and to feeling and it's the kind of value which you absolutely cannot quantify you know that then you've got to start thinking about okay well we can't we can't get this by like appealing to the morality of these owners because what's going to win morality or, or or their own bottom line it's going to be their bottom line are we thinking in terms of legislation which imposes, you know, at a national government level, something like the 50 plus one rule that has been somewhat effective in Germany in in closing a gap between clubs and fans?
1: I think that's partly why they didn't go to Germany, by the way, mm. um, because they realised that the fans would hear about it and then it would get out and then it would be a problem. Um, and, you know, uh, fine. The horse is kind of bolted in the UK, Um, I don't know if you can suddenly go back and go 50 plus one, we're going to enforce that now because I get the feeling that you, the Premier League, I I think what's strange about it is the Premier League has gone to the government who at one time were really encouraging the fact that the Premier League was free business to just do whatever it wanted. And they were like, yeah, we're just free business. We just do whatever we want. And now when there's free business, we invited the billionaires in. It's just, They don't like it that the other billionaires are doing the other idea that they, which, by the way, I think they always had in their minds, and I think they were always building towards, it's just that UEFA, FIFA, the Premier League, all these people were still making profit from the old model. So why bring the new model in when you're making profit from the old model? Like, we can wait on this. We can make this last another 10 years, maybe another 15 years, and then we'll bring it in. Because you know, where else are these clubs going to go? Where else are the fans going to go? And that was part of it. It was like these, I think that the Premier League and UEFA and all these guys just didn't expect that this would happen. And I don't know why. I, this is what I'm saying. I think this is the clip that you maybe found me through. Mm. It was like, I don't know why we're siding with these guys because they they did very similar. And basically what they did was they bought our idea of the league system. They don't own it. They don't own the concept of it. They never owned the concept of it. They basically just went, we'll take the top 20 of these and we'll pay more money. And everyone went, brilliant. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Fine, cool, okay. And for some strange reason, we just accepted it. And I don't know why. It's bizarre to me.
0: I mean, I sort of wonder if like, this is how, you know, this is the connective tissue between the conversation we're having now, which is like very much about football and the politics and the economics mm-hmm. of football, and it branches out into politics and economics proper. Right. Which is in.
1: By the way, most people want to deny that. Sorry to cut you off, but I think a lot of people want to make that distinction, and I think you and I are probably the opposite kind of character. That we totally want to draw the lines out from football to politics to those things. Other people go, "Well, no, what happens on the pitch happens on the pitch, and what happens in real life happens in real life." And in many ways, I, I you know. I think that is a reflective maybe of where you're sometimes where your politics stand is you want to pretend that there is this distinction between the two when actually that you can't really separate the two.
0: I think was things tend to be also the most politically loaded when you're pretending the politics isn't there.
1: Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think I've actually heard you say that before, which is.
0: Yes, I (laughs) am recycling old lines. Um, (laughs) But I mean, I guess the thing that I sort of want to talk about is like the branching out bit is that, in Germany, you have still a social democracy where people aren't casual about questions of ownership. And you've got an idea of there are things which are for the public good. Obviously, you don't have in the same way a nationally owned health service the way we do. But you do have a sense of, of you know state ownership because here are things which, um, if left to the logic of the market, will will deteriorate in some way. Whereas in, you know, Britain and America, two countries which were really, um, you know, they weren't the birthplace of neoliberalism, but they were the chief exporters of it. You know, we became really casual about the idea of we will interact with the world as if all we are is a consumer. And, you know, you hear so much about consumer rights and customer rights. And I've always felt really icky about that because, I just think that's a right to a refund and that's kind of it. But you're sort of trapped. You you still have to consume things so you need them to live. And the idea of of an unalloyed public good, um, which shouldn't be in the hands of the market, isn't really there in the public consciousness. And it's not there, certainly, in terms of how our politicians are thinking.
1: Are we also having different experiences to the Germans, I think, um, in terms of, uh, you know, if if you look at what happened with Dortmund or you look at what happened with Bayern's statements, they just know that their fans wouldn't stand for it and they know that they couldn't get away with it because they're a different, it's a different culture. Culturally they are different people. And that's partly why I think, you know, Britain was a particularly good place to do this because we're very passive. Um, We won't necessarily say things and we'll kind of just let things happen. And then when it's too late, we'll sort of go, Oh no. And, that's not, in Germany, I don't believe that's the same. I'm not being stereotypical here. I'm just saying like when I've heard fans have problems before, when I went to Dortmund, Thomas Tuchel was in charge and it was post-Klopp. And I really wanted Klopp as Liverpool manager. So I was going around asking all the Dortmund fans like, what's Tuchel like? And they were like, yeah, he's not Klopp though, is he? And I was like, no, I get that. And they were like, yeah, we just want Klopp back. And we blame the club for that. And we hate the club for that. And I was like, Wow. But I was like, but Jurgen Klopp left under a cloud. And they were like, yeah, we would have just put up with it. It was absolutely fine. We, we loved Jurgen Klopp. We wanted him to stay at the club. And I just thought, I'm not sure whether we'd approach that in the same way in England. I don't know if we get like the same truthful lines or whether it would come out in the same way. And they were just so unashamedly owning what was theirs. And in some ways, like, I think sometimes when we put our head above the parapet in England, like maybe my clip, got online the other day people are like idiot cuck liberal whatever you want to call me i don't know like I, you know we're all we, we're quite passive people sometimes and i um I, I find that very strange and i find it strange by the way that real madrid aren't voicing their thoughts because when you go to the bernabal there is no set of fans who are better than voicing their distaste about what is going on on the pitch and the same with barcelona i don't get it i don't i don't get why we're not hearing more
0: I mean, it's interesting to hear you talk about these elements of almost like national culture and identity, because one of the things I'm hearing again and again and again is this move is being driven by global markets and global fans. Mm -hmm. And there is this idea that fans outside of Europe are bound to be kind of plastic fans. All they want to see is like, you know alien versus predator again and again and again, sure. you know, so it's just, we just want to see Liverpool versus Real Madrid. Real Madrid. Madrid yeah. Why, why should we see them mm, play a smaller team? Right. Do you think that it's getting a bit pin the blame on the foreigner or is there totally. some truth to the idea of, of, you know, global fan equals plastic fan? Uh,
1: I I, I have direct experience of this big fan. Mm-hmm. Like I keep saying, big fan of the NBA, big fan of NFL. Of course I'm a plastic fan. I've never been to San Antonio, but I really love what they did and I really love what they do. But am I the same kind of fan as a fan that's local? No, but that's okay, I I know that. But the problem is the marketing wants you to think that you are just as important as the local fan and they want you to act just as important as the local fan. So they'll give you a Twitter vote, which means nothing, and they'll give you a Facebook vote and you can up a video or you can interact on TikTok. But that's not the same. I'm just just being honest here. It's not the same as going to a game. You aren't having the same level of geographic, emotional... Uh, you know, visceral investment in this side and something you can see physically. Of course, it's different from something you can see on television. Why do you think people say the book is better than the film? Because it's all happening in their mind. Like there's so many reasons why local fans are different to international fans. And of course, the international fans are being demonized. Why? Because we can't see them because they're a concept. Because, you know, I, I could blame it on this nebulous idea of, uh, you know, some... I'll, you know, what, I'll use an, an Indian fan as a, an example, because mm. I've actually got a, a, literally got a friend who just texts me who is an Indian fan. And he was like, I don't know what the problem is here. What's the, what's the issue with this super league? And I was like, well, then let's have a conversation about it. But he saw it so differently because of course, mm. because of course he does. And then when we spoke about it and we spoke about Shankly, the history of the club, all these kind of things, he totally understood it. But what they bank on is just us sort of going, right, we'll go on Twitter then, and then we'll tweet about these foreigners and that'll be the problem. And they are the problem. By the way, totally, there are so many people who off camera say to me, who are English, who love Manchester United, who love Liverpool, who love all the clubs that are in this, that go, yeah, actually, I'm kind of for it. I kind of want to see a bit of a mix up here, but they wouldn't dare say it in public. They wouldn't dare say this because they're sick of the Premier League. They're bored of the same turgid product. They're bored of COVID football. They're bored of all these things. And they're bored of football not changing and listening to them. And at least they think, well, some change is better than a rest.
0: I mean, do you think there's a little bit of, I mean, I was thinking about like, what are the analogies for this? Like, is there a bit of like Brexit in this, which is you're torn between defending a really imperfect already existing institution, which is sort of presided over all sorts of drift and it feels very distant, it feels very far away. And then there's a bit of you, which is like, well, I'm just gonna press the red button, blow it all up. And I don't care if what I get is better. I don't care if what I get is better, but it's just that what I have is bad. Right. Like, do you think that there's some of that impulse operating for those people or or, or am I reaching? Am I just reaching because it's a politics show and I'm trying to do a politics connection?
1: No, no, I don't, I don't think you are reaching. I think like there is the, uh, that thought process is very prevalent, right? And so you're talking about the process. You're not necessarily saying that if you're a Brexiteer, therefore you're against it. And if you're not, then you're for it. I think, I actually think you're right. I think, but the, the, the impulse, I think very often is to blow it up, right? The impulse mm-hmm. very often is to start from scratch because we like to think, we like to think that scratch exists. But there isn't like scratch. Like you blow something up and then life just keeps moving. You don't just get to start again. Like Liverpool every season, don't go sell all the players and then we'll just see what happens. We'll just start from scratch. Do you know why? That's crazy. And you don't do that because it doesn't make any sense. And you have emotional attachments to these people. And the reason you're attached to the people is because they represent your club, because they represent you. Like it's much more complex than that. But again, like you you pretty much nailed it. It was about the marketing of Brexit. And it's the same with the marketing of the Super League. It's the same with the marketing of the Premier League. We're sold on the marketing. And frankly, we've dug deeper within two days of this being announced and found that they haven't particularly thought this through. And that's bizarre to me. Like, If you're going to spend three and a, I, I pitch to people all the time for cash to make videos. And it's much less than three and a half billion, believe me. And these people don't wanna part with that cash. They're like, wait, hold on, that final scene, what's gonna be in that final scene? So the fact that JP Morgan has pledged three and a half billion to a nebulous idea that all these clubs are gonna be in there and the clubs just went, yeah, we'll sort of work it out as we go along. And um, We think that'll work because uh, who knows? Uh, people will still watch it, right? And JP Morgan went, signed it up, sign it off. Like, that's <laughs> crazy to me, but they don't seem, like if I was launching a product, I would want everyone to know all the good points of it. You know, when the iPhone launches, I've got an iPhone, right? Or when an Android launches, they don't just go, trust us, it's a good phone. Because they know, they know that's not good enough, right?
0: So then you have to start thinking, well, so what is it that J.P. Morgan gets out of this, which isn't just money, right? Which isn't just money. And J.P. Morgan's an interesting bank, um, I'm a, I'm a boring person. I'm like, oh, let me find out what's most interesting about this bank. One of the things that they do is in order to try and sort of embed themselves and, and legitimize themselves is they um, tie themselves to projects which are to do with infrastructure, which are to do with projects which have some kind of cultural or geographic significance and that kind of thing. So I sort of wonder if this is them trying to... Sports wash. Yeah, sports wash is, you know, people don't like banks. No one goes, what's my favourite kind of public institution? No one goes, you know what, a transnational bank, which has sort of been linked to, you know, the global financial crisis. Um, So it's a way of going, you know, I know what people like, sports. I'm just going to dress myself in this kit.
1: And all the corporates can come along and hold a T-shirt up or, you know, hold a flag or a scarf. And God, they have Bovril at half time and they're
0: they're just like
1: us, aren't they? that's exactly why I like John Henry is because his wife tweets about the club and every time they win. And when we won the Champions League, she was like, oh, this one's for the fans. And I was like, it is for the fans, isn't it? (laughs) And uh, no. And and I get it. Like, you know, of course it's for the fans because we're buying stuff. But like that's sports washing. But frankly, like what's the reason we don't call it sports washing is because the people aren't from the Middle East. And it's just another brand of sports washing. And when Americans come in, very often we're like, yeah, of course, those guys are like they, they like, they made America. So they must know how to make cash. And then when you get the Saudi Arabians or someone like that, then people go, oh, it's just oil money. They didn't earn it, did they? That's mad. That's, that's racist.
0: I think when you have to just resign yourself to the fact that you're part of the banter timeline, you're like, you know what? let the worst thing happen.
1: Right. A part of me does want that, right?
0: Mm. And it feels so counterintuitive. Like here's this club, which I love. And I'm almost praying like we get docked points, we get relegated or something happens. I get and do, do you think that this is a disconcerting experience that suddenly all your measures of success in the space of two days have been turned on its head? So now I don't think what would be successful for Spurs is to, you know, get top four finish, whatever. What I want is to see us punished enough that we pull out of this horrible project.
1: (sighs) Yeah, that's actually, you know what? It's a really interesting one because I'm really conflicted over what, whether I want my team to be punished because do the fans deserve that punishment? Like, do, I, I know me, as someone who lives in London, not Liverpool, as someone who covers it and therefore needs like cannon fodder, would be fascinated by it. But, The people are in the cop every week. Is that what's best for them? And that's where I'm kind of like, I have like a morbid fascination with the whole thing. Because I'm like, we could really do something special here. But at the same time, I know that the Premier League doesn't want to punish their top six because then the top six will revolt and then they really will be angry. And then you are marketing Burnley who are top of the Premier League and then your marketing doesn't work anymore. No offence to the Burnley fan who just gave five pounds. Like, you know, that's lovely. But your club is not marketable in the same way as Liverpool is marketable. Because globally, they don't have the same footprint as Liverpool. What I'm, what I'm basically saying is, uh, no, I don't want to see anyone punished. Because I think it will. Liverpool fans will suffer.
0: All right. What is a good outcome out of all of this? I mean, like we're starting to wrap up the show now. We've gone through an awful lot from financialization to sports washing to, you know, the history to do with tradition and romance and identity. What looks like a good outcome then? Because the status quo wasn't working. The future that's being um, potentially imposed on us is awful. What, looks like progress and how do you think it might be achieved
1: how do you achieve like can i ask you a question how do you think you achieve progress amongst uh, a load of people who blatantly just don't financially don't need to benefit like they want massive benefits all these people are millionaires anyway like john henry anyone who works for the premier league is clearly a millionaire how do you enforce change within them how do you like in your experience how have you seen change happen because i'm kind of i'm a bit lost on that i don't really know how that happens
0: I, so I kind of think that we sometimes romanticize changing people's minds and actually what it's about is leverage and it's right. leverage in terms of collective organization. It's about collective forms of ownership and financial clout. It's about somehow being equivalently scary or powerful to the set of interests, which want to impose their will on you. Um, how you then build that block which is capable of doing that well that does take persuasion that does take changing people's minds but i think merely appealing to the powerful who you know already have a lot of money they don't need more money mm-hmm. and yet still want more money trying to convince them to say no you don't need more money i think it's clearly not going to work like i can't get right. in the mindset of what it'd be like to have a hundred thousand pounds let alone a million or a billion pounds right so right. if i had a hundred thousand pounds what I'd, I'd be like fuck what do i do yeah what do i do with yeah. all this money how many freddos can i buy for this loads um right
1: okay but is is that like i guess that reflects like our background compared to theirs and maybe why we don't own football clubs ourselves you know <laughs> maybe why you aren't daniel levy is because you, you if you've got a hundred thousand pounds you think to buy however many freddos you could afford like
0: i think that's uh, a good question is the sound investment uh,
1: to be fair i think you could probably field them and they might do a better job than the current spurs squad um i <laughs> That was mean. And I'm sorry. Um, The point is, uh, I get what you're saying. Uh, Basically, what you're saying is there is an element of be cruel to be kind, but we have to find a way to hit. It's the owners here. It's not the clubs. Mm -hmm. And we are somehow like uh, putting the two together because they own our clubs. And obviously we want them to be right. Obviously, we want them to do kind things for us. We want to believe they're benevolent and that they care about us. And so we will talk and act in a way as if they do, because we think that that's making it happen. And you see that in football all the time. I get angry at Robbie Savage for evaluating Liverpool's title chances. Does that realistically affect Liverpool's title chances? No, but you'd be damned if I won't call that show and think that somehow I'm changing reality if I tell Robbie Savage that that's the case. And I have that on my football show all the time. If I say something people disagree with, they go, oh, I used to like you. And I'm like, well, I just said something. We, I was only evaluating what I saw, but and they think somehow that I'm changing the fabric of reality by saying that Manchester United aren't good, or that Liverpool, or that Liverpool's left back is tired, and that, that's kind of where we sit in this. There is a, by the to to finish here, there is a slight problem that we have. I think sometimes in the discourse around football can be very heavily mas- like masculine. I'm not saying that's a problem, although you know it comes with its pitfalls. But sometimes what it can lead to is a uh, a lack of positive outcomes because there tends to be a lot of want for a the hero, which I don't understand why we're looking for a hero in this. It's only going to be collective action that will help here. There was very there were. Sky asked questions of Jurgen Klopp last night and then someone wrote an article, I'm not even kidding, they said he could have been the Winston Churchill of this. What do you even mean by that? Like, Winston Churchill was not the man that we need in this scenario. First of all, because I don't think he'd like the Premier League because it's marketed to foreigners. But secondly, I don't think that he needs to be that. We were mean, it's weird to think that Jurgen Klopp is going to fix this or that anyone is going to be the white knight in this.
0: It's also Winston Churchill didn't defeat Hitler in hand-to-hand combat. That's not how things changed. Right. There were armies of millions of exactly. people thrown at each other.
1: And not only that, but in that scenario, the Americans were kind of a good guys. <laughs> so I don't, you know, it, none of it works in the analogy. But what I'm saying is uh, there, are, there are certain tropes maybe that football fans act with And we need the foresight and the forethought collectively that in this instance, Manchester United fans, Arsenal fans, Spurs fans, Chelsea fans, Man City fans are not our enemy. Collectively, we like football. I know this sounds incredibly care bears, but (coughs) collectively, we like football. For once, it's not about point scoring that Jürgen didn't give the right didn't say the right thing he's gone down in my estimation because of that his mask slipped tonight didn't it yeah oh yeah but james milner said it because he's a good he's a good football guy isn't he He just gets football and he gets footballers like we have this tendency to kind of go down that route of like cliche Mm -hmm. and what cliched men would say and therefore be heroes therefore look for a, a solid solution that we must follow this is not gonna like the whole point is these are a bunch of men who came up with a really bad solution for the current problem. Why we think we're going to come up with a better solution within three days isn't going to happen. So patience.
0: Also, maybe this is a good, a good lesson to learn, right? Which is that if billionaire interests are acting collectively, then we have to as well. We can't go looking for individuals when we're not dealing with individuals.
1: That's a really great, I said that in nine sentences, whereas you said it in one.
0: Yeah, I was just going off what you said. It was kind of plagiarism.
1: Sure, sure. We built it as a wall.
0: Um, but Lawrence, thank you so, so much for spending time with us today. Um, Thanks for
1: having me. Appreciate it.
0: I love doing this kind of thing. I think that politics journalism is best when it's engaging with culture and engaging with things that people actually watch. And I also think that football commentary can also use a little social political analysis as well. So this was mm-hmm. my dream. Thank you.
1: Thank you for having me. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara
0: Media. Go to NovaraMedia.com support.